know if you've kept up with news, but something broke the internet this week. Does anyone know what broke the internet this week? And by the way, breaking the internet for, is young people speak, not literally that the internet broke, but that something caused a part of the internet to crash. Okay, now that that's explained. What broke the internet this week? Anyone remember? Not the royal wedding, but that dress. That dress broke the internet. It caused a crash on the website that that dress was listed. And why, though, did that dress break the internet? Well, if you've been keeping up with the news, it's because that lady wore that dress on her visit to Australia. And she's not just any lady, of course. She's the princess, the Duchess of Sussex, otherwise known as Meghan Markle. That dress, mind you, cost $1,800. And so many women wanted to buy that dress online after they saw Meghan wear it, that it literally caused a crash on the website for at least a few moments. It broke the internet. Now think about it, $1,800. Why would so many ordinary women want to spend so much money on a dress, enough to crash a website? Would you do it? Does anyone you know might, would they do it? Probably. Well, the reason is because by following Megan in wearing the same dress, in some ways, some of that glamour rubs off on you, doesn't it? It does. That's, that's why people do that. It's the same for any celebrity-endorsed product. Why buy that brand that LeBron James uses as opposed to just some ordinary brand that does the same job? No, it's because you get some of that glory for yourself. By wearing that dress and buying that dress, you too can be like her. You're an ordinary person, but you can dress like a princess. You can be a princess too. And all the guys are thinking, no, I don't get that. Now, if that's what you want... $1,800, sure, is expensive, but, you know, some people would be willing to pay that kind of money, wouldn't they? Now, in Mark chapter 10, this bit that we just read, Jesus' disciples, James and John, they weren't just following a celebrity from a distance, like we see Meghan Markle on TV, or maybe you went up and saw her at the opera house. No, no, these guys were the celebrity's closest friends, and there was no celebrity like Jesus in his day. And Jesus' ID, his identity has now been revealed, all right? Everyone knows he's confessed that he is indeed the promised king, the Messiah. He's the one they've been waiting for for centuries, the savior of God's people. That's who he is. And so you can understand why as his followers, how much more would his followers wanted and expected that his glory would rub off on them? I mean, this is us looking at Megan from a distance. But they were the closest people to him. Surely they expected to gain some glory directly from him. Now what, we're gonna, what we read about is and what we'll see is the events of this chapter as it unfolds, we'll actually see just how wrong they were. Even though I think we can understand where they're coming from, we also know that they were completely wrong. And along the way, we're going to be challenged to think about what it means for us today in 21st century Australia to follow Jesus. That's where we're going today. I'm going to pray and then we'll uh, dip into the passage together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we see you in the pages of Scripture this morning, help us to see you not just as someone in the past, but someone in our lives wanting to engage with us today by your word and by your spirit. And help us, those of us who are followers of Jesus, 
to know what it really means to follow you and be challenged in that. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, if you follow uh, the outlines, are very blank or very kind of skimpy outline today. I'm going to focus on the three main character groups, James and John, Jesus, and then the blind man, Bartimaeus. So let's go. Um, point number one, a um, bit of a recap. All right, we're back in the book of Mark. We came back last week. I think uh, James Hoey preached, you remember, from chapter 9. And the reason why we stopped after chapter 8 is because Mark is neatly divided into two halves, 1 to 8, 9 to 16. Mark is one of the biographies of Jesus and probably the earliest biography of Jesus. It's the shortest, but also the most action-packed. I like to think of it as the action movie biography of Jesus. So the first eight chapters of Mark is very simple in terms of what question it's answering. The question it's answering is, who is this man? Right? Who is Jesus? What is his identity? First eight chapters are all about that. Now then at the end of chapter 8, and if you're a quick flipper, have a look. Chapter 8, 27, you get a turning point. Jesus turns the question on his disciples after he'd done all these miracles, done all these teachings, and he turns his disciples and says, well, who do you think I am? And then his chief disciple, Peter, leads them to confess Jesus' identity. He says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the promised King. And so from that point onwards, his identity is known, secret no more. And so chapters 9 to 16, we're in the second half. And so Jesus now, in chapter 10, is in the final two weeks of his life, all right? We're coming to the end of his life. This is the final fortnight of his life. In chapter 10, they are marching to Jerusalem, which is the capital of ancient Israel. Now, you see in verse 32, back to chapter 10 that we read, um, verse 32, you see Jesus isn't just walking alongside them. He's not just with them. He's actually now in 32 leading the way. Now, this is very, very symbolic. And in some sense, he's always led them, but now he's positioning himself at the beginning of the crowd or the head of the crowd, leading them their way to Jerusalem. It's very symbolic because it's not just celebrity with his entourage and his fans. It's actually got revolutionary overtones, right? It hints at revolution. Remember, this is the king. This is the promised king of Israel. He's marching and leading people towards the capital. That just smells of revolution. Remember, this is Roman-occupied Israel back in the first century. Jerusalem was a hotbed of revolution. Before Jesus came, there were scores of other Jews wanting to claim Israel back. And now here's Jesus, and he's leading people to the capital, and he is the king. No wonder in verse 32, you might have read before that his disciples were astonished, but everyone else was afraid. Did that occur to you as strange? Why were they afraid? Well, now we understand why they're afraid, because they're probably thinking, is this going to lead to war? Is this going to lead to a revolution? Now, in this context, James and John, they come to Jesus, right? You see, in verse 35, and they make a pretty bold request. They ask Jesus to do for them whatever they ask. Jesus, give us a blank check, basically. Now, I think we're meant to be shocked by that. You don't talk to a king like that, do you? You don't even talk to a teacher like that. How many of you working in companies would go to your boss and say, I want you to do for me whatever I ask? Right? Not many of us would be willing to do that. But they do. Now, why, do they, why are they so bold? Why could they ask that? Well, remember last week when James preached on 
Jesus up the mountain and he's changed before them. Transfigured is the word. Who did Jesus take with him? Just three people. He had 12 disciples. He only took three. His closest three. James and John were two of them. And Peter. Right? These guys were the inner circle. They were closest to Jesus. And Jesus had his most spectacular revelation on the mountain last week, chapter 9. And they were two of the three people there who saw it. And we also know from the other Gospels, the other biographies of Jesus' life, they were really close to Jesus. Uh, John refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. At the Last Supper, he's kind of leaning on Jesus' shoulder, the physical intimacy as well. These guys were close to Jesus. All right, so they knew now who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. Jesus has been open about this identity now. They're closest to Jesus, so they thought they would pull what I would call a big move. Now, if you're familiar with the TV show Survivor, any Survivor fans here? I am. Love that show. Um, not, not enough of you. Anyway, the season just finished, Australian Survivor season three. Anyway, um, if you know the show Survivor, it's all about alliances, big, bold moves, and blindsides, all right? So people get together, they form these secret alliances, and then they blindside someone. Often they don't know what's coming, and then they get voted out. And it's like, what just happened? This is what's going on here. James and John are forming an alliance, and understandable, they're brothers, and they're going to pull this huge move, a huge blindside to get ahead. And who are they blindsiding? Well, remember, there were three that were part of the inner circle. James, John, and Peter, the chief disciple. You don't see Peter getting mentioned here, right? They don't care about Peter. They're going to blindside the chief disciple to try and get ahead. And of course, blindside the other 10 disciples as well. But they probably thought, look, if we don't ask for it now, if we don't grab hold of it, then it's never going to happen. Now, in case you're thinking, oh, they're super ambitious, the other 10 were perfect. Well, you see later on, the other 10 get really narky and angry at them, which actually means they wanted the same thing. They just felt a bit disappointed they didn't get in there first. All right? They all wanted the same thing, but James and John thought, here's our chance. Let's go for the big, bold move. We want you, Jesus, to give us a blank check. Now, verse 36, surprising, isn't it? Jesus doesn't shut them down. He turns to them and asks this question. What do you want me to do for you? Now, when Jesus asks a question, he generally already knows the answer. All right? So it's interesting that he asked that question. And it is a really important question. It's an important question and probably more important than we realize, not just because later on, I don't know if you noticed, he asks the blind man Bartimaeus the exact same question. And we'll come to that later. It gets a totally different answer. What do you want me to do for you? Same question happens twice in this passage. But it's also important because I think it's the kind of question that he is asking us. He's asking you. If you are a follower of Jesus, or if you're even considering becoming a follower of Jesus, I want to say that that's the question he is posing for you today. If Jesus hypothetically gave you a blank check and he asks you, what would you like me to do for you? I wonder how you would, this very moment in your life, honestly answer that question. And what kind of lack in your life, what kind of need, what kind of desire do you have that you would, what would you, what would you answer? Jesus is giving you a blank check offer. What do you want? 
It's interesting, we just finished um, a couple of months ago Fresh, which is our supper series for those investigating Christianity and Jesus. And some of the feedback we got um, was, I don't really want to become a Christian just yet, a follower of Jesus yet, because I really don't see what Jesus could really do for me at this point in my life. Like me, I don't have any problems believing in him. I just don't know what I can get out of it. Yeah, is that something that you've heard? Maybe something that you yourself feel? Or if you have a friend who's not yet a Christian, it's valid question. What does Jesus do for me now? Well, imagine if Jesus does give you that question. What do you want me to do for you? How would you answer it? Now, James and John, they knew exactly what they wanted, right? Verse 37, let one of us sit at your right hand and let the other sit on the left in glory. That's a huge request. In the ancient world, imagine, picture the king is on his throne, right? To the right of the king is going to be his heir, usually his son. Um, and, and the right of, you know, the right, we even use the term right-hand man for a reason, okay? It's very important, second most important. To the left of the king is going to be, you know, something like his prime minister or his chief regent. Right? They don't just want to bask in some fantasy glory of wearing some same dress as a princess, they wanted the real glory of sitting on thrones next to a king. That's what they wanted. Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? Their answer is essentially, we want to reign with you. We want to rule with you. We want power. We want glory. We want wealth. We want honor. We want all that's coming to you to come to us as well, but we want that above everyone else. We want the positions of power. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus or you're considering, again, let me ask you, what's, what's in it for you? What are you in it for? Now, I take it that no follower of Jesus here would be so crass as to ask Jesus, uh, ask Jesus for what James and John were asking. But I wonder if, if, if you are a Christian, if you took an honest look at your life, are your motives for following Jesus also perhaps a little bit tainted as well? Now, here's a diagnostic question. Here's a diagnostic question. What would it take for you to stop following Jesus? Now, have a think about that if you're a follower of Jesus. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, don't worry about it. But if you are a Christian, what would it take for you to stop following Jesus? Now, I think my immediate answer would be nothing. Of course, nothing. I've given my life to follow Jesus. Nothing's going to stop that. Or maybe, I, I suppose, if I lived in places like Syria and, you know, there was a knife to my throat or a gun to my head, maybe persecution or, or torture, I, I, I'd be tempted at least to stop following Jesus. But really, at this point in time, nothing. How would you answer that? What would get you to stop following Jesus? Well, let me share with you the reality as I see it, being a pastor in Sydney, I do see people stop following Jesus. And can I say it's never because of persecution or torture? Not in our world, it's never happened. But I do see people stop following Jesus. And it's usually one of two reasons. One is, people get disappointed with Jesus. Or, they want something better than Jesus. They're the two most common reasons. Either dreams have come crashing down or Jesus gets in the way of better dreams. First reason. I'm still sick. 
I'm still single. I'm still broke. I'm still unemployed. I'm still hurting. I'm going to stop following Jesus or just slowly fade away. Well, the second reason, I'd rather have the money, the friends, the relationship, the career, the pleasures. And so I'm going to stop following Jesus or I'll start fading away. Do you see? Like, there are reasons or at least temptations for followers of Jesus to stop. But what is a diagnostic question, remember. What does it show then? It shows that our following Jesus also often come with strings attached as well. Do you see what I mean? That Jesus for so many Christians also is a means to an end. And we're not that different to James and John, are we? Now we see here that James and John were sadly mistaken, of course. Not just because of their boldness and arrogance and blindsiding of their fellow disciples and friends. They're mistaken, ultimately, because they just don't get it, all right? And they just didn't get what it means for Jesus to be the King, the Messiah, the Savior. And this is something we have to get our head around if we really want to follow Jesus with pure motives as well. So have a look at verse 35, because that's where the passage started. Oh, sorry, verse 32 is where the passage started. We started looking at verse 35, but 32, this came immediately before their request. So the context is important. So look at verse 32 again. Let me read it out. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We're going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man, that's how he refers to himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, that's non-Jews, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. That's the context. Right before they ask this bold question, that's what happened. Now, let you know that Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10 are structured around three of these. We call them passion predictions. The passion just means Jesus is about to go to the cross or three predictions of Jesus' death. Each time Jesus speaks about what's going to happen, his disciples are going to say or do something stupid. This is the third one, but there were two others. All right, so if you're a quick flipper, chapter 8, verse 33, Jesus makes his first prediction of what's going to happen to him and what happens immediately. Peter... His chief disciple takes Jesus aside and rebukes Jesus, says, no, this can't happen to you because you're supposed to be the Messiah. Pretty dumb. All right? The second prediction happens in chapter 9, verse 34. After Jesus again predicted what's going to happen to him, the disciples, now all of them, are fighting to see who is the greatest. Again, it's a brain disconnect given what Jesus just said. And here the third one. Jesus is given the fullest, the longest prediction, and James and John, they're trying to get ahead above everyone else. See, they just don't get it. Every time Jesus talks about what it means for him to be the Messiah, they do or say something dumb. As I said, Mark is divided into two halves. Chapters 1 to 8, who is Jesus? Now that that's been answered, chapters 9 to 16 is going to answer the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? And we have the answer to that, right? What does it mean for him to be the Messiah? The answer is, Jesus is a king, is the Messiah. But he is the king who's going to suffer. 
He's the king who's come to die. He's the king who's going to be crucified. And so here's the irony. In Mark chapter 10, his two disciples say, I want to sit on your right and your left. The next time the right and the left of Jesus gets mentioned is, anyone can guess? When he's on the cross and there's two criminals, one to his right, one to his left. (laughs) All right? The only glory you're going to get is to see Jesus on the cross because that's the kind of king he is. So let's move to point number two, Jesus. Um, James and John's, I like to think of their total, it's really what they did was a total shocker, all right, in Australian terms. Their total shocker leads Jesus to speak more about what it really means for him to be king. So, verse 42, chapter 10, let's pick it up from there. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, you see what the logic is. Jesus and what he's come to do is the template, the blueprint of what it means to follow him. All right, you see that logic? Who he is, what he's come to do, becomes a template for what it means to be a follower. So let's start with the end, verse 45. Let's really unpack what Jesus says about what he's come to do. Because this is a really, verse 45, Mark 10, 45, if you like memorizing parts of the Bible, that's a good verse to memorize. Right? The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Because it's a brilliant summary of Jesus' mission. Jesus, the Son of Man, came to serve and sacrifice. That's what verse 45 is about. He came to serve and sacrifice. Even though he is the king, he's come to serve. It is a completely upside-down world, isn't it? Because the disciples are familiar with rulers and people in power in the Roman world, people who used power, people who were brutal and harsh and savage with power with little accountability. Now, it's a lot better in our world, but you know what? Power still gets abused in lots of ways. You see it all the time, right? Have you ever been bullied or threatened or manipulated by someone in power? A lot of you would have been. A boss, a teacher, perhaps even a spouse, a husband, a parent. And I hate to say it, but it does happen. Church leaders? I mean, this is our world. And it's so sad that it's even part of church life. But it happens. This is our world. But you see, this is not how Jesus' world and the world that he's come to lead and the people that should follow him should be like. Because the king here takes on the position of a slave. In the ancient world, the most high position is that of a king or a ruler, and the lowest of the low is a slave. And we don't even have slaves in our world, at least legally, right? It's a complete contrast. Um, He says the Son of Man. He uses that title a lot about himself. Um, There is a place in the Old Testament where there is one like the Son of Man. It's in the book of Daniel. Don't look it up. But in Daniel 7, the Son of Man, by the way, in Daniel 7, is a glorious, exalted ruler. Again, like a king. But look how he says that the Son of Man 
will be a slave. The Son of Man will give his life as a ransom for many. Now, what's the idea of ransom? What's the idea of ransom? Uh, well, ransom is a price that you pay to secure freedom. Yeah? A price that you pay to secure freedom. So you pay a ransom for hostages, for example. So Jesus is saying he will die, his sacrifice, his life will be payment to free God's people. That's what it means for him to be a ransom for many. Now, I wonder how you would answer this question. Who killed Jesus? Sounds like a simple question, right? Who killed Jesus? Uh, my friend uh, Dave Jensen, who's an evangelist, uh, he's now in Ireland, uh, he wrote a blog about it this, this recently, and he says, how you answer that question, who killed Jesus, shows what you really understand or not about Jesus. And he says in his experience, when he asked that, if someone is not yet a follower of Jesus, often the outsider, they will say, well, the Romans killed Jesus, or the Jewish authorities killed Jesus, and people who didn't like him in their day killed Jesus. But then those who've been to church, and they may not even be followers of Jesus, and they just mean nominal. Those who've been to church will at least know that, no, 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 my sin had something to do with it. So often their answer is, and this is probably your answer, my sin killed Jesus, right? Because of what I had done, God, Jesus had to die on the cross. But then he kind of challenged us to think, yeah, that's true. But really the Bible's answer is this. To the question, who killed Jesus? The Bible's ultimate answer is what? God killed Jesus. You understand that? God killed Jesus. I know it sounds almost... But that's actually the Bible's answer. It's, it's actually the answer of Mark 10.45. Because ultimately, it was God who put His Son on the cross. Now, why would God put His Son on the cross? It's because He wanted to free His people. And that freedom was costly. And that freedom was costly. I don't know if you've read the books or know the movie, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. Edmund uh, comes under the control of the White Witch because of his love for Turkish delight. Now, I don't know if you like Turkish delight, but there's very little I would give up for Turkish delight. Anyway, maybe back then people loved Turkish delight. Um, anyway, he finally realizes the error of his ways. He basically you know, follows her instead. And he wants out. He wants out. He doesn't want anything to do with her anymore. He realized she's nasty. She turned people into stone and blah, blah, blah. But he can't get out. Why? Because she now owned him. He didn't know this. But by following her and giving in to his temptation for Turkish delight, she now owns him. And now that he wants to get out, she feels betrayed and she wants to kill him for betraying her. So you've got this kid, probably like, what, 12 years old, Right? He's trapped, he can't get out, and he's about to be killed. But then Aslan, the key, one of the key characters in the whole of the Narnia novels, the great lion, he steps in. He talks to the white witch. We don't hear that conversation. Edmund observes it from a distance. But then the next thing you know, Edmund is freed. The white witch agrees to free him. He doesn't immediately know that now how that happens until a little bit later on that night. He sees Aslan in chains. The great mane of this beautiful lion is shaved off. His mighty body is beaten and he is humiliated and he is marched to this altar and with the white witch's own hands he's slain by her on the altar. Now C.S. Lewis who wrote it was a Christian and he wrote that as a powerful but imperfect picture of what it means for us to be freed. We're like Edmund. 
And Jesus, Aslan, represents Jesus, pays the price. Like he is the ransom. He sacrifices himself for our sin. Like Aslan does sacrifice his life for Edmund's. So yeah, who killed Jesus? Yes, the authorities. Yes, our sin. Yes, Satan. White witch Satan using all of that. But ultimately, Jesus himself chose to do it. God offered himself in our place. Verse 38, when Jesus talks about the cup that he will drink. Don't have time to show you the passages, but in the Old Testament books like Jeremiah, the cup is the cup of God's anger over his people's sin. Now, Jesus never sinned. So he drinks the cup of God's anger in our place. The baptism Jesus refers to also in verse 38 isn't what we think of when we think of people getting baptized at church. Baptism is the baptism of death. Death is, baptism is a metaphor for death because baptism is the idea of being overwhelmed, being engulfed by water. And sometimes death is pictured as going into the waters. So Jesus' cup and his baptism always are referring to his death. He died in your place, in my place, to take the punishment of sin so that we wouldn't have to. Now, why did he do that? It's because he loves you and he wants to free you and he wants you to be his forever. Now, you might be here and perhaps this is now registering for you really for the first time. Not the first time you heard that Jesus died for sins, but I, I've been praying this week and I pray today that maybe God is using today in this verse to unlock your heart. If today you really have come to understand that, Jesus died as a ransom for you. He paid the price for you. Then what I please urge you today, don't wait today. Give your life to him to follow him. And you can. You can have your sins forgiven. You can be a new person. Talk to him. Talk to Jesus. And talk to either myself or one of the friends who brought you. Okay, back to the passage. Remember the logic. What Jesus came to do, to serve and to sacrifice is a template for those who follow him. The upside-down king who would serve and sacrifice means that his followers ought to walk in that upside-down kingdom. To be great, you have to be a servant. If you want to be first, you, get, you have to be a slave. James and John, in a sense, they were right to want to be great and first. They just misunderstood what it meant to be great and first, right? They should have wanted to be a servant and a slave like Jesus. Now, I think if you are a Christian, you probably know that. And like me, it's easy to say, right? We get it. It's easy to say. But it's so hard to get. Really get. I mean, just for a moment, think about um, what, what do you imagine when you think about power? Where do you see power at work today? I think of the corridors of Parliament House in Canberra, all right, where decisions get made, politicians strut around, and, you know, these guys are powerful people. Or maybe you don't really think politicians are that great. Maybe you think of the boardrooms of the greatest companies, you know, the top four accounting firms or whatever company you work for. There's real power there. If you've ever worked for a corporation, right, these guys have power. Their decisions affect everyone. A whole staff team could get retrenched because of their decisions. What do you think of when you think of power? Right, the corridors of Canberra, the boardrooms of the greatest companies. Who is the greatest in those settings? Well, you know what? If you really believe Jesus' words, I'll tell you who is the greatest. It's the cleaner. 
who comes after hours to clean the toilets. Does anyone think like that? I don't. But that's what Jesus is saying. You want to see greatness? It's the person that you wouldn't even notice because it's 3 a.m. and everyone's shut down and they're just cleaning for everyone else. They're the greatest. Wow. And again, I, I wonder if you really believe that, really believe that in your walk, in your following of Jesus. Here is my second diagnostic question. My first one was, what would it take for you to stop following Jesus? Here's my second one. What would it take for you to stop serving others for Jesus' sake? Right? What would it take for you to stop serving others for Jesus' sake? And let me again share with you what I've observed as a pastor. And so I'm going to talk about the context of people who serve in church. Now, please let me explain. I'm not saying that serving at church is the only way you serve others. Hopefully, you are serving in lots of different ways, in your homes, in your families, in your neighborhoods, and even in your workplaces and unis. But let me just use this as an example. As a pastor, right, what have I observed about what it takes for people to stop serving at church if they have been serving at church? Or maybe, why is it that some people never take up service at church? What are the reasons for that? Now, there are always going to be good reasons, and I don't want to discount that at all. Some people stop serving or can't serve because of health. There are certain challenges and stages of life, like you've just had a baby or whatever. That's fair enough. Um, unexpected circumstances come up, personal grief, tragedy, all that. Okay, they're good reasons. But you know what? More often than not, I see other reasons. It's disappointment. It's frustration with people. It's conflict that's not being resolved. It's feeling unappreciated. You're doing all this thing and no one even says thank you. Or it's just too hard. It's discouraging. It's lonely. Now, I want to say at, at, at SWEC, your pastors and team leaders want to help you address those issues. And we really do. We want to look after you if you're serving. But it is worth asking, isn't it? Do your reasons for not serving or stopping serving show that maybe, just maybe, and it's not going to be everyone, but maybe your serving of others was also a means to an end? Does it diagnose your heart in some way? See, it's easy in the context of church to serve because let's be frank, even in this kind of tiny context of service, it can lead to recognition and influence or friendships. It's fun serving with people. You make friends or approval or respect. Like they're all reasons that also come up for people serving. And, and I wonder whether sometimes they just are the real reasons why we do it. And so we serve when we're getting that. Or we serve when it's convenient for that for me. We serve with strings attached, but we stop when it's no longer meeting my needs for approval or influence or friendships or respect or rec Do you see? Can you see how different that is to what Jesus is calling us to? A slave doesn't ask, what am I getting out of this? They just do it because that's what they do. Well, Jesus paved the way for that. He came to serve and sacrifice so completely. And so we need to know that if we're calling ourselves followers of Jesus 
or want to be followers of Jesus. It's a life of service and sacrifice. By the way, it's a, it's a life of service and sacrifice that leads to great joy. Not because you aim to get joy out of it, but because, you know, when you do, you get joy. When you're walking in Jesus' footsteps, it's living the way you should live, okay? But you see, James and John don't get it at all, and I wonder if we do. Now, Mark chapter 10 ends, happens to end with someone who does get it. And um, point number three, and this will be a really quick one, because really, Bartimaeus, this third character, he could be a separate sermon on its own. Because of time, we don't have time to go through it in detail. I do want to include it, though, because I want it to be appointed to your own reading. I'm hoping you go away from this, or maybe you did already in your CGs, uh, community groups, and you've gotten something out of it. Because I want to show you that Bartimaeus is actually the perfect ending to chapter 10. Do you see what he has in common with James and John? Right, we read it earlier, we won't read it again. He recognizes who Jesus is, right? He cries out, you are the son of David, another word for Messiah, the king. Like James and John, he is bold, he is persistent. He keeps crying out again and again, even though the crowd tell him to shut up. And Jesus, and I mentioned this before, Jesus asks him the same question he asked the disciples, or James and John, what do you want me to do for him, for you? Right, so there's a lot of similarities. It's deliberately set up to be similar. But then the similarities, of course, end there because there's more that he is different to James and John. Unlike James and John, he is not special. He is not in the inner circle. In fact, where does he start off in this story? He is by the side of the road. That's symbolic as well. He is really the outsider. And of course he is because he is a blind beggar. No one cares about him. He's just an annoyance. He's persistent, but he's pathetic. All right? It's not, Jesus, I want you to do for me whatever I ask. It's, have mercy on me. He doesn't want glory and power like James and John. What does he want? He just wants what we take for granted every day. We can see. That's just what he wants. So he's very different. But do you see, what does the writer Mark, the biographer of Jesus here, what does he think of Bartimaeus? The short answer is, he sees Bartimaeus as the ideal disciple. The ideal disciple. I'll show you why. See, verse 50, when Jesus calls out to Bartimaeus, come to me, look what he does. He casts aside his cloak and he immediately goes to Jesus. Just think how, much, how many possessions a poor beggar would have had. Probably nothing. The cloak was probably it. And he cast that aside. I think that's symbolic, especially if... Again, no chance to read it, but earlier in chapter 10, you've got the rich young man who couldn't follow Jesus because he couldn't sell everything to follow Jesus. Well, what a contrast, right? This guy leaves everything he has and he immediately follows Jesus. It's a sign of discipleship. But even more so, the last verse, verse 52, Bartimaeus, after he is healed, it says he follows Jesus on the road or along the road. Now, that phrase, along the road, in verse 52, we actually saw in verse 32 at the beginning, it's just translated differently. In verse 32, it's translated on their way, but it's exactly the same phrase in the original language. On the road, along their way. And in these chapters, that's a shorthand way of, for those who follow Jesus as disciples. Those who follow Jesus are those who follow him along the road or along the way. And it's following him along the road to Jerusalem where he's going to be killed. Bartimaeus does that at the end of the chapter. He is the true disciple. And so here's the irony, right? He who isn't a disciple is a better disciple. He who is blind sees better than those who could see. Wonderful. 
Why is he able to do that though? Why is he able to be the ideal follower of Jesus where James and John, who were the follower of Jesus, don't get it? Well, I think it's because, oh, I think it's pretty obvious. It's because he perfectly shows that upside-down world that Jesus has talked about. Now, what does it take in Jesus' upside-down kingdom to be a true follower? Well, you've got to be like Bartimaeus. You've got to come with nothing. You've got to come empty-handed. And that's how he comes. He knows it. He has nothing. And in God's economy, though, those who know they have nothing come and they get everything. And so I want to close with this. If by any of the diagnostic questions I've asked, the two, what does it take for you to stop following Jesus? What would it take for you to stop serving Jesus? If you've realized that it's, it's shown that maybe there are limits and conditions to your discipleship. Hate to admit it, but there are then I want to say to you, chances are you've lost sight of what Bartimaeus teaches us. Chances are you've lost sight of what Bartimaeus teaches us. Because in Mark chapter 10, you can either be the James John, or you can be Bartimaeus. And if you find yourself wanting to give up on following Jesus, or give up on the life of service, chances are you've stopped seeing yourself as a Bartimaeus before God. And that's easy to do, right? so easy once you've been a Christian for a while to start thinking you're better than you are. You've lost sight of grace then. It's all about mercy, undeservedness. You've lost sight of firstly the gravity of your own sin and the enormous sacrifice that Jesus had to pay on the cross because of your sin and what it cost God to ransom you. I mean, you think about the two requests, James and John versus Bartimaeus. God has unlimited wealth and power and glory. In some ways, it would be easy for him to grant James and John's request. It costs, if you've got infinite, then to give some costs nothing, right? Infinite power, glory and honor for him to give glory and honor and power to James and John would have cost nothing if you're drawing on infinite reserves. But he only has one son. And so giving up Jesus as a ransom for many was impossibly costly in comparison and that's what god gives because it's far more costly and that's what he gave for you october the 31st is halloween but it's also what we call reformation sunday reformation and we did this last year we celebrated reformation because uh, it was 500 years so it's 501 years since the reformation started the key figure of the reformation is of course a guy called martin luther and uh, there's an extract of a key speech that he made at a key moment when he was kind of up for inquisition. And he's known to be saying very boldly those last few words, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me, amen. And every time I read it, I get goosebumps. But I hate to disappoint you, there's a chance, a good chance, scholars think that he never actually said those last words. <laughs> the here I stand bit. Like everything else, yes, but there are, you know, chances he never said those words. It was just added in there to give people goosebumps. Um, but I'll tell you what is for certain that he did say, or in this case, he wrote. You see, after he died, they found a little note in his pocket. Really, you could say that these were his last words. So even though we don't know if he said the here I stand really goosebumpy bits, I'll tell you what his last words were. His last words, the thing he took the time to write down as he was dying in bed, were these words, we are beggars, this is true. That's it. Strange last words for a great man who changed the world. But I think he got it. 
He understood what it meant to be a Bartimaeus all of his life. And if he did say these here I stand words, or at least he did show the bravery of what it cost to follow Jesus, it's because he understood what it meant to be a beggar the whole of his life. And if we're followers of Jesus, that's what we've got to do as well. Let's pray. We realize, Lord Jesus, that we are truly in your eyes beggars, and that is true. Help us never to move beyond that. I pray for anyone here who, through today, is wanting to, maybe for the first time, give their life to Jesus because now they've realized that he died as a ransom for them. I pray that this would happen. I pray that those of us who are followers of Jesus, who today may be being challenged to think about the conditions that we've laid down, that really are about us and not about him. Help us to repent of that and see ourselves as beggars needing mercy and therefore renewed in our desire to follow Jesus all the way to suffering, service, and death so that in his new creation we might truly share in his glory. Amen.